Hi, I'm Nate Flax. I'm Noah Longworth McGuire. And welcome to another chat episode of Talking Lion. We uh, we missed the last one. Um, we is a strong word. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I I missed it because I was uh, I, I caught a stomach um, <laughs> problem. Yeah, that's um, fair. And also, this is a hard thing to, to write when I'm feeling good, let alone when I'm feeling sick. So I'm, I'm feeling better now. But we're back. We are back. So, Noah, do you know what this episode is? No idea. Couldn't tell you. Noah, <laughs> I believe this is our 100th episode. Our 100th episode? 100 what? episodes. 100 episodes. That's so cool. This was just a twinkle in our eye. I know. Back in so long ago. <laughs> Truly so long ago. We can't believe we've done done 100 episodes. Thank you to, to everybody who has been a part of them. Yeah. All of our guests. All 75 guests. So many guests. 75 public guests. We actually have a lot more who have done it since. Stay tuned for this season. Stay tuned for the season. And 25 chat episodes. Yeah. That equals... Uh, that's my calculator. <laughs> that's 100 episodes, Noah. 100 episodes. It's the 100th episode. Any any thoughts reflecting on, on 100 episodes? I mean, I can't believe we're still doing this, but it it feels good. I mean, like you said, we'll we'll keep doing it until we stop having guests and stop having things to talk about, which isn't happening. Is, yet. It hasn't happened yet. Put us out of our misery. <laughs> stop liking. Stop wanting to be on this show, yeah. artists. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you? Stop having thoughts. Maybe and- ne- maybe next season I'll write a book. I'm just to keep it going. I'm I'm all for it. <laughs> Even wanted to do your video essays for a minute. That's true. You could do podcast essays. Yeah, I have. I mean, that has been on my list. It's been on your list. I'm I'm one bad day away from going full this American life on something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for the bad days, Noah. <laughs> waiting for the bad days. Well, maybe before 200. Yeah, maybe before 200. Can't believe we've done. Can't believe we've done 100. It it's. I, I'm grateful for all the friends we made along the way. No, I'm seriously grateful I for. I mean, yeah, we've for, we've really made some friends in this podcast. We made some friends with this podcast, yeah. like people who maybe wouldn't have, you know, trusted us. Yeah. If if we hadn't sort of met in this context, so thank you to the the friends, old and new, who we met on this, who supported this. I mean, it's just it's just wild. So, a hundred episodes. 100 episodes. Thank you to everybody who has been listening to this developing book that I'm working on. And for anybody who wants to like help with this, like I would be so happy to chat with you, take notes on your personal experience, all that stuff. And I am also trying to do like this bigger research project involving comparing Apple Music streaming numbers to Spotify streaming numbers. So if you are interested in helping me out with that, and it doesn't matter if you're a big artist, small artist, like five streams or five million streams, I don't care. I just need raw data. So uh, please feel free to DM us and I'd be happy to chat with you and learn from you. But I think that's that's all kind of, I think we should really dive in because there's a lot to unpack. Yeah. In this chapter. So are you ready, buddy? I'm ready. This is the Gambler's Guide to the Music Industry.
game theory. Decisions versus outcomes. There comes a point in every professional gambler's life when they need to accept a heartbreaking reality. They need to know a little math. You can't be sure if you're making a good or bad decision unless you have an understanding of what exactly is informing your decisions. Gamblers, often on the fly, need to determine when they have the best of it and when they don't. For example, in blackjack, if you're dealt the dreaded 16 and the dealer is showing a 7 or higher, you'd be left with a bit of a dilemma. To stand or to hit? Without any knowledge of probability, you may think the best decision here would be to hit, since the dealer's winning card, 10, is the most common card in the deck. But data from millions of simulated games have shown that hitting gives you a 25.23% chance of winning, whereas standing gives you a 29.01% chance of winning. While your individual outcomes may vary, there is a mathematical advantage to one decision over the other. So how does this apply to the music industry? Well, as a gambler, you may find yourself in situations where, with a little thought and math, you can actually figure out what the best decision might be that aligns with your desired aim. But does this mean you'll actually get your desired outcome? Maybe. As I stated earlier, the ultimate purpose of this book is to inform your decision-making. I have no control over your outcome, and despite all your efforts, neither do you. If you did, it wouldn't be gambling. It's important to divorce your understanding of quality decision-making from outcome-focused thinking. Decisions are informed choices you make. Outcomes are what happens, which is a synthesis of your decisions and the variance of reality. For example, if you have an 85% chance of winning a hand in poker, your best decision is to stay in that hand. But you may still lose that round 15% of the time. Does that bad outcome mean folding would have been a better decision? No. It's just the outcome. Of course, that's a tough thing to say to someone who just lost all their money on favorable odds, but it's the mathematical truth that informs good long-term strategy. Part of the trouble of pop culture, if I may paint with the broadest brush, is that we often focus obsessively on the outcomes of our idols and ourselves, without spending much time on the quality of their and our decisions. If you ask a lottery ticket how they won the lottery, they could talk your ear off about their lucky socks, daily superstitious rituals, and the alignment of the planets on the day they won. But ultimately, they won the lottery because they made the decision to buy the lottery ticket, which is mathematically a bad decision, and happened to win, which is a good outcome. The music industry is often a game of throwing dozens of ideas into the public void to see if anything sticks, often without too much decision-based thinking, like buying lottery tickets. I've seen many music friends reach massive success outcomes without understanding their sound, team, branding, priorities, and finances, decisions. Likewise, I've seen the converse, where music friends have a strong grasp on the elements of their project, decisions, but haven't managed to hit it big, outcomes. While the former are arguably more quote-unquote successful, if they don't develop their decision-making, they might find themselves growing stressed and unhappy as they drift away from their unique sound, get taken advantage of by their team, become inconsistent with their branding, face financial troubles, and risk being pushed aside when the next rising star comes along. The latter are in it for the long haul and may find themselves happier and more comfortable musically and financially due to their life and career being on their terms. This is why it's important to separate decisions from outcomes so as not to consider yourself a winner with bad decision-making habits or a loser despite making informed good decisions. But how do we determine a good decision from a bad one? Well, here's where the math comes along, or more specifically, Economics 101. We'll need to learn the basics of game theory. 
Okay, I see your eyes glazing over. Finally, you think, I'll get a good night's sleep from this chapter. While I can't promise intrigue, I do think this part could be just a little fun. I mean, come on, game is in the title right there. But okay, I gotta give a formal definition, so brace yourself. Game theory is the study of mathematical models of strategic interactions between rational agents. Thank you, Harvard. Thank you, Yale. Thank you, Ron Howard's 2001 Academy Award-winning movie, A Beautiful Mind. But what does that formal definition mean? Basically, what it's saying is that if you're smart, see also rational, and the person you're interacting with is smart, rational, then there may be a way of actually determining how good or bad each possible decision you can make may be, a mathematical model of strategic interactions. Game theory can be used in all aspects of life, from poker to commodities trading to living with messy roommates and to playing the music industry game. Formally speaking, a game is made up of four parts. Players, information, actions, payoffs. So the music industry game is as such. The players, you and everyone else in the music industry. Information, what you and they know about the industry's laws, cultures, and players. Actions what you and others do. Payoffs, what you and others get as a result of you and their actions. This could be measured by value systems. In studying game theory, you might quickly stumble upon a famous game model called the prisoner's dilemma. It goes as such. Two members of a criminal mob are arrested and imprisoned. Each prisoner is in solitary confinement with no means of speaking to or exchanging messages with the other. The police admit that they don't have enough evidence to convict the pair on the principal charge. They plan to sentence both to a year in prison on a lesser charge. Simultaneously, the police offer each prisoner a bargain. The possible outcomes are, if A and B each betray the other, each of them serves two years in prison. If A betrays B and B remains silent, A will be set free and B will serve three years in prison. If A remains silent but B betrays A, A will serve three years in prison and B will be set free. And if A and B both remain silent, both of them will serve one year in prison on the lesser charge. This can be represented with the following outcome matrix. I'm going to describe it, but if you want to see this, um, you can check it out on the Prisoner's Dilemma sheet on our Instagram. So say you're Prisoner A. What would you do? If B stays silent, you'll get one year in prison for staying silent and zero years for betraying. If B betrays you, then you get three years in prison for staying silent and two years for also betraying B. Regardless of what B chooses, in both cases, one year in prison is worse than zero years in prison and three years in prison is worse than two years in prison, your betrayal would give you a better payoff. The best response to all circumstances is called a dominant strategy. The first lesson of game theory is always play a dominant strategy. Yet, these payoffs don't exist in a vacuum. This breakdown of strategies is all based on the implicit assumption defined by the aim. Spend as little time in prison as possible. But what if there was a different aim? What if the leader of your mob offered a handsome reward to anyone who didn't snitch and would kill anyone who does? So with that information, your new aim may be get rich, don't die. With this aim, the payoffs in the outcome matrix would change. If A stays silent and B stays silent, they both make money. If A stays silent and B betrays A, then A makes money and B dies. 
If A betrays B, but B stays silent, A dies and B makes money. And if A betrays and B betrays, they both die. You can find this matrix on our Instagram. With this new aim stemming from the new information, betrayal is no longer a dominant strategy, seeing as it will get you killed. And staying silent would actually be the dominant strategy. In fact, if the mob's generosity and vengefulness were known by all its members, otherwise known as common knowledge, then you could also assume prisoner B will stay silent, thus shortening both of your prison sentences as well. What's tricky and worth remembering moving forward is that information may not always be common knowledge, which can have an effect on your aim and the other player's aims. In the above example, maybe only you know the mob snitching rule. So while you choosing staying silent as the dominant strategy of get rich, don't die, prisoner B might choose betrayal as the dominant strategy of spend as little time in prison as possible. This isn't to say you don't win. After all, you'll still get rich and not die. But it could mean the overall outcome isn't what you expected. Three years in prison instead of the assumed one. An understanding of dominant strategy can be applied to an area creatives often dread, asking for money. In this example, say you're a producer interested in working with an artist, and you're deciding whether you should work for free, represented as zero, ask for equity, aka master points, represented by the percentage, or ask for your rate, which is going to be represented by the dollar sign. The artist can either agree and hire you, disagree and not hire you, or negotiate with the assumption they won't negotiate for anything higher than the lowest offer. The financial breakdown would then appear like this. And this matrix is available on our Instagram, but I'll also describe it. There is There are three columns and there are three rows. The three columns are from the artist's perspective, agree, disagree, negotiate. Three rows say free, dollar sign, percentage. Now, the entire free row are zeros. The money row has a dollar sign under agree, a zero on disagree, and a less than the money sign on negotiate. The percentage has the percentage on agree, but with a note that it's also zero dollars. Zero on disagree, and less than the percentage on negotiate. To put the payoffs more plainly, the free row goes as such. If you don't ask for anything and they agree, you'll get zero. If they decide not to collaborate anyway, you get zero. And they won't negotiate up from zero. If you ask for your rate and they agree, you'll get your rate. If they decide not to collaborate with you, you'll get zero. And if they negotiate, you might get some money, but less than your rate. For the percentage row, if you ask for points and they agree, you'll get points, but no immediate money. If they decide not to collaborate with you, you'll get zero. If they negotiate, you might get some points, but less than you asked. So is there a dominant strategy here? Well, something is missing to determine that. What is your aim? This is where our value systems come into play because you can use them to define your aim and potentially uncover a dominant strategy whether strictly dominant or weakly dominant. Take real value, whose aim is earning the most money you can in the moment. In this case, you can eliminate all outcomes that don't reflect direct payments. The outcome matrix would go as follows. 
This also can be found on Instagram, but to describe it, the entire free row is blocked out. The entire percentage row is blocked out. And the entire disagree column is blocked out. Just agree from the money row and negotiate from the money row. With a real value aim, asking for your rate becomes the dominant strategy since that's the only way for you to get paid something directly compared to the other strategies. This would also apply to an opportunity value aim of don't take any work at the moment below your rate. If that's the case, asking for your rate is still the dominant strategy with agree being the only acceptable payoff and the the zero in disagree working as well since you don't want to work with them if they're if it's not for your rate. Before going any further, there is an important problem with this model. Often a negotiation can transmute money into points and vice versa. So let's fix this outcome matrix. I've now added to the negotiate column that for money, it's less than your rate and or points. And for points, it's less than the points you asked for and or money. There's a little caveat on the percentage, which is potentially later, of course. With this slightly more detailed matrix, the real and opportunity strategies remain the same. But if you choose your value system to reflect expected value with an aim such as earning the most money as possible, ultimately, then this new information can help determine what scenario would create a dominant strategy. If agreed-upon points and negotiated points are greater than agreed-upon money and negotiated money, then asking for equity is the dominant strategy. If agreed-upon money and negotiated money are greater than agreed-upon points and negotiated points, then asking for your rate is the dominant strategy. This makes it sound so much more complex than it is, so here's the simple version. Pick the row that satisfies the aim, as in the one with the most money. Please check out the graphic on Instagram if you want to see see some tables that illustrate this point. What happens if the agreed-upon rate is less than the agreed-upon equity, but the negotiated rate is greater than the negotiated equity? Again, there's another table. It'll be on Instagram. But basically, it's kind of checkerboarded, where in one scenario, one is better, but in another scenario, the converse is better. In this case, while free is still dominated, as in it's it's still the worst strategy, neither choice of your rate or equity has a decisive dominant strategy. This is where combining value systems comes in. As stated above, a real aim would create a dominant strategy for asking for your rate. Since in the agree and negotiate, you would earn more in direct cash than the equity decision. But what about an unexpected value aim? Unexpected value relies on equity, since it's linked to the unexpected success of a project. So if the aim of the unexpected value is get equity, then the outcome matrix could be represented as binary. Yes, no, do you have equity? And it could be like this. I'm going to put this up on Instagram as well. It's the same matrix, but instead of there being symbols or numbers, it's just yes or no, where the entire free row is no, the rate row is agree, no, disagree, no, negotiate, yes, 
And the equity row is agree, yes, disagree, no, negotiate, yes. With this new aim, the payoffs change so that asking for points is the dominant strategy. This would also help break the above stalemate in favor of equity, just like real value broke it in favor of your rate. Free seems to be pretty solidly dominated at this point, but is there a value system or multiple value systems whose aims could change that? What if the artist was huge and it would benefit your career and social media to have a credit as the producer of one of their songs? What if the artist will only work with a producer if it's on spec, which means for free? In this case, the complementary value aim would be work with this artist regardless of the cost. Again, this could be represented as a binary. Yes, no, will this artist work with you? So it's a new matrix. This time the free column is yes, agree, no, disagree, yes, negotiate, no, no, no on the rate row and no, no, no on the equity row. With this aim, free becomes the dominant strategy since that's the only way the artist would work with you. This matrix would look similar with free as the dominant strategy for a sentimental value aim, such as volunteering to produce a friend as a kind gesture. In that case, working for free would yield the desired payoff if the binary question was, are you working pro bono? Whereas bringing money and equity into it could soil the generous gesture. Some of this might be second nature to you, internalized and exercised regularly. But laying it all out like this serves a deeper purpose in understanding an important aspect of game theory. Aims matter. The definition of your aim can determine the quality of your decision. Is there a dominant strategy? And whether your outcome is a win or a loss. Your aim defines your game. And it also defines the games of other players. It's also important to recognize, as we did with the prisoner's dilemma, even though you might be playing with one aim, value system, outcome matrix, someone else might be playing a game that's entirely different. Your real value, cash in hand aim, could contradict with someone else's more unexpected equity via development aims as they're looking for a long-term collaborator. Your sentimental value, no fee for friends aim could leave you vulnerable to someone else's real save that money aim of acquiring free production. Understanding the nature of your aims as they relate to your value systems will help you build a career that resonates with you and a little bit of game theory will give you insight into the decision-making process of yourself and the players around you. And that's a chapter. Okay, hell yeah. So that, that got a little bit in the weeds. It did get a little bit in the weeds. Did I lose you? No. I, okay. I, I, I felt I was ready to get lost and, and, and have to be like, hmm, here's where you lost me. But, um... I mean, partially, it's hard. This is where I'm. I'm having a hard time with this whole like uh, endeavor writ large. Is like I obviously live and breathe this, you know, as much as you do. Even though I'm not necessarily, I'm not writing the book. Well, and I think like, a big point of this, like I said, I, I mentioned at the end, is like for so many people, this is internalized. Yeah. So, you know, for somebody who isn't in this, like all of this is theoretical. But for somebody who's doing this, this is just really like almost reductively yeah like breaking breaking it down and i i heard this i th- i heard this i think in, in in a yale lecture about game theory a reductive model that has some truth to it 
is better than not having a model. Yeah. Like I could bring in all of these factors or whatever to make this model more accurate or, or quote unquote accurate, but it'd be confusing. What I'm trying to do with the little bit of game theory is just show you that you're making these decisions already. And these people are already making these decisions already. And if you feel like you're not connected to those decisions, it's because maybe you're not, or you feel like you've, you keep losing mm. um, in a way that's personal to you. Like you're losing what matters to you. It's because maybe you're not picking the right strategy or you're not, you're, you're playing a game you think you're supposed to be playing instead of something that aligns with your value systems. Yeah. That's that's all I'm kind of playing in yeah. a little bit. I also think like coming out of the last chapter, it's really nice. Like if anything, it's it 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 runs the risk of becoming like coming out of a very like a somewhat technical chapter on value systems. It runs the risk of becoming increasingly technical by adding in game theory. But I actually think the strength of this uh, of of what you've kind of laid out is what I liked about it is you actually, you lay out, you know, the prisoner's dilemma, which, you know, I'm already familiar with, so it's hard to in, entirely gauge, like, how much of a comprehensive rundown that was. But for what it's worth, like, I felt like it was pretty straightforward. Or at the very least, like, got me thinking about it in the right way. And then you bring in, here's how a value system interacts with this little, like, grid, which, you know, as a visual learner, I really liked. Because it's like, oh, if you have different value systems, the grid looks different. Which I feel like is a very like, even though it, it comes from this very technical place, it lands, you know, in a nice color coded way. You get to see, oh, if 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 I'm if I want something out of a business interaction, it will. If I want different things, how I approach that interaction will look very different. Which seems very obvious, but it can also get very technical. Well, and I think that where I actually like, and mind you, I was I wasn't feeling so well, but where. I did struggle in trying to figure out what what comes after the value system chapter. Right. Like, do we dive into picking out your band name and like whatever? Like, no, there's still one more thing. And I kind of wanted to go into like how to figure out your what what opportunity value was, you know, trying to calculate your hourly rate. And that felt now we're jumping ahead too far. Yeah. You know, I wanted to talk about expected value, maybe, and talk about like how to come up with, you know, a, a workable average, you know, value to one percent, you know, of a song. Right. And that felt like I was jumping ahead too far. So I started like listening to some lectures about, you know, and, and revisiting some some of what I was reading on game theory. And I, you know, I got to this piece about about payoffs and about how like there's the prisoner's dilemma. And I was and 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 that's the prisoner's dilemma. Right. But that, you know, of course, there have been so many people talking theoretically about the prisoner's dilemma. And I'm sitting, I'm and I'm there like, yeah, but what if you don't want to snitch? Right. You know, like what what if what if you just don't want to snitch? Yeah. You know, or what if you get punished for snitching? Right. Like all of a sudden, something that makes so much sense, which is that there's there's a better choice here. Right. Gets kind of thrown out the window because you know, one thing you might want, you know, contradicts with the other. So that felt like, for me, like the kind of the next place I had to go. Yeah. Because what's the point of talking about value systems 
if it if you can't really see how fundamentally it can change your perception of playing this game. Are you a winner or a loser? Are you making good decisions or bad decisions? You know, like, is our goal, is our goal, mine and your goal, yeah. just to make money in this, right. to pay our rent? Because if that's our goal, we have succeeded. Right, exactly. If our goal is to have a million Instagram followers or millions of monthly listeners, then we, we're, we're losing. Or we, have, we are currently in a state of not having won. Right. This is something I've actually been working through in a lot in therapy is for a while, like I've been trying to become more active and like exercise more. And for a while, I was holding myself to this standard of, oh, well, I have to get into this habit of like exercising for a little bit every day. And it never, never worked. And my therapist eventually was like, how about you just like go running like one time this month? And that is a win. Like you think of that as a win. You go running one time this month and that's win. And then next month, and then next month you go running twice and that's the win. And it seems so kind of simple and stupid, but that reframing has been incredibly helpful because then instead of like what would have in another framework of thinking about it have been an incredible loss, me going running one time in a month, just that's thinking- That's 29 days you're not. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You can think about it that way, but it's like, if you just focus on like, well, I set out to just do this one thing and then accomplishing that one thing. That's an hundred percent. That's an hundred, that's an hundred percent success. And it, and if you let it feel like that, it's, it, it's so much more productive than focusing on the perceived loss of it. It reminds me of something, I mean, sort of tangentially also reminds me of something you, that this thing that somebody said to you at the party. Oh yeah. 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 The thing about, um, you know, the um, the person in the gym lifting five pounds next to the person lifting 50 pounds are both kind of exerting the same amount of strength because they're operating at their limits. And it's just like, they're both exerting the same amount of effort, but their threshold for how much they can lift is just very different. And, and, I, and I love that because, again, they're playing like different games for each other. Right. You know, if, if the, the person lifting 50, you know, went to lift five, that wouldn't be the challenge that they set out to, to, to accomplish. Right. Um, I think a big part of this book is trying to, to create like two roads that, that can feed into each other, but also both can kind of be nurtured, um, separately, which is a way of thinking that is financially solvent. Right. And a way of thinking that is uh, emotionally and mentally sustainable. Right. Because I think that, especially in what we do, they're really linked a lot with, with each other. But, but also, like, it's one of the few professions where we can be led so far by our sentimentality. So I think that, that a lot of this is like a mathematical and like like theoretical, you know, econ 101 approach to just how we do we think about what we're doing? Mm-hmm. How do we feel about what we're doing? And and also understanding that the people that we're working with are as complicated as we are right. with their own set of motives that we could be the perfect foil to, 
mm-hmm. we could be the perfect compliment to, or we could be the perfect sucker to. Right. And just understanding, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. Like understanding that, like that, what's driving you could be vastly different from somebody else. I think is a, is a, not just a way of connecting with what you want, but also a way of developing the empathy that we usually have for creating with other people. You right. know, I mean, like we already have an empathy to be able to write for and with other people and understand what they need and all that stuff. But but using that empathy and and not saying that empathy is only useful creatively. Saying you can actually use that empathy to understand your business and understand your your strategies yeah. and other people's strategies. You know? Not that you're opponents with anybody, but but you know sometimes your your goals are not in alignment. Like your goals yeah. are pulling at each at the at two different ends of a rope. And sometimes y- your loss is somebody's gain. Yeah. You're, you know, taking equity when, you know, on a long enough timeline, whatever, that equity would be less than the fee. Yeah. You know, I, I had a situation recently where where I was working with an artist who it was really important to them, both sentimentally and from a business perspective, to keep, to buy out their masters entirely. Yeah. And not give any equity to producers. And I, in the inverse position, was like, I actually want a little bit of equity, even if it's not that, even if it's not that much, partially for sentimental reasons, but also partially for investment reasons. And that was the negotiation that ensued was like, I'm going to be taking away a little bit of what you care about, both from a business perspective and a sentimental perspective, in order so that I can accomplish what I want out of this, you know, from a business perspective and from a sentimental perspective. Well, so you can see the outcome matrix playing out like that. For them, there is this, this, their expected value um, is worth more to them than the real value. Right. They care more about what a song could do um, b- based on their own thoughts, maybe of it, you know, expected and unexpected values, you know, combined, uh, then the real value. So they're willing, you know, for their matrix, it's again a binary. Do I have equity? Yes or no. Right. Exactly. And and it's not about what's you know one worth more than the other. But, but so their dominant strategy is to give you cash. Yeah. You know, whereas for you, you care about unexpected value. Yeah. And and there's there is a sentimental value to that. And so you can take, you know, a sentimental unexpected hybrid value system, which is do I have equity? And you can see that matrix play out as well, which is that if you do take that fee, you would be losing. Yeah. In your eyes, that would be a loss. Yeah, that's how I felt. You know, no matter what the actual value, like what no matter what the actual financial yeah. value is, that is a loss. To not take it, yeah. and so you, again, it, I, th- I think that's a, an excellent example because you can see these value systems kind of playing tennis with each other, yeah. and of course the overlap of the value systems too. You know that like somebody's care for—I mean, obviously everything at the end of the day is a little bit sentimental, right? But somebody's care for expected value, you know, could be that they know that they always, you know, get an average of. Five million streams. So they know that their equity is valuable, you know, or maybe it's that they only get a couple hundred streams, but they believe in a very significant way that every song could be a massive 
hit. Right. So they they have this weight on unexpected value, you know, which I think we do as well. I yeah. think you and I are big development people. So our unexpected value and that binary of do we have equity is important to us. You Definitely. Know? That's a great example, though. I appreciate you sharing that, yeah. you know. Um, and I, and it's cool that you advocated for that because that is a place to advocate for it. Yeah. You know? And, you know, it it ended up being, I think, more sentimental than anything else. But it, that was still very important to me. Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, and I, I mentioned this earlier in the book, you know, on, on risk, that like the motives behind value systems are oftentimes really dependent on where you fall Financially. Right. I mean, you wouldn't be arguing about this if you needed money now. Right, exactly. Like, there wouldn't be a negotiation about how you feel about this and right. everything like exactly. that. You know, and, and about development and what that unexpected comes from a place value. Of privilege. It, well, privilege and of just what your current situation is. Right. You know, if your financial situation was, I need to pay the rent, you know, real value is a value system that you need to rely on. Right. You know, I was talking to, on, on the 3rd of July, we went to this 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 party mm-hmm. by, by, by a massive songwriter. I was talking to another massive songwriter that wrote a hit 20 years ago, like a massive hit 20 years ago. And we were talking about this, this very thing because I knew somebody who sold um, the projected equity of their hit for, for hard cash. But she said that she wouldn't do that. Mm. And that's somebody who who sees being paid regularly over the course of 20 years as, as more important than getting, you know, valuing that over getting one fat check right, right now, you know? Um, which again, I think comes from sometimes a place of comfort and sometimes a place of understanding your financial needs. Yeah. You know, if you're in dire straits, you need that cash now. If you know, there's a, a health issue or you want to go on vacation or you're about to get a dog or have a kid, you need that cash now. If you already have the dog and you're all right, but you do know that like you have regular expenses, maybe that's where your expected value becomes more important because you want that consistency. Right. You know? So it's um it's an interesting kind of give and take, you know? Uh, but it doesn't necessarily have to be purely economics and it doesn't have to be purely sentimental. Right. It can be really just based on on your situation, your life and and what is valuable to you in that time of your life. Yeah. You know? In the in that time of the week, you know? Like That's true. Are we making this decision on you know the 29th of the month or are we making this decision on the 5th of the month? Right. Well, you know, rents due. The rents also then been paid. Right. You know, exactly. so it's just like it. Uh, you know, are, are you are we making this decision? You know, before you you hurt your shoulder. Right. Or you know, before they unfreeze student loans. Mm-hmm. Or are you making it after? Yeah, definitely. Big. You know, not to make it personal. I just. I made it hella personal, just yeah, like really yeah. quickly. No, but I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's valid. I'm here. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's still, you're still breathing. Yeah, I'm still breathing. Yeah, still kicking. So that's the, that's the, that's the chapter. And I'm glad it makes it, like, is there, was there anything that, that wrote, like, or No, it, I, it felt, it felt pretty smooth to me. I was, I was really trying to go into it with a very fine tooth comb and like 
poke holes in it, but I, it it feels really once again feels like a really robust chapter to me. And and to those listening, I I, I understand that having a a very table heavy chapter. Yeah, <laughs> it's also maybe a little complicated. I promise, if you did get lost, it really does help to listen. Look looking at the tables, so you can find those on our Instagram. If I get one DM about this, I will be like pleased. Yeah, you know so. So I, I speak to all five of you who are listening, you know, um, whatever I can do to make this more understandable and easier for you to use, you know, please, please let me know. But uh, I guess that's that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we did game theory. Yeah. I think from here, I am now no longer getting like going there. Yeah, because there's, there's other resources for that. Yeah. I think if people want to go deeper into that world, they can. But like, but I'm, I'm even actually like leaving. Theoryland mm-hmm. and diving into like time to start the band. Yeah, I think know? I think that's I think that's smart. Um, get get it a little more grounded. Yeah, a little. Yeah, you know? exactly. Maybe start my memoir part. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, a, l- a little personal flavor. That's always yeah. Sure that'll that'll add to the experience. Yeah. They're like three chapters in. It's like you haven't talked about anything. But, <laughs> right. But your adventures. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Is any of it true? <laughs> They're all true. <laughs> yeah. All right. Should we call that a podcast? I'd say so. This has been a podcast. You've you've listened to you have listened to it. Thank you guys for being a part of the hundredth episode. Noah, the hundredth episode. The hundredth episode. You can say you were here for it. <laughs> we'll be back next week with uh, our interview with our friend and collaborator Aaron Kirby. We recorded that episode following me getting two hours of sleep in Vegas and driving <laughs> back home. Speaking of gambling, right. <laughs> So, uh, I hope you guys like it. Um, I remember it being a pretty good one. I don't remember anything. <laughs> <laughs> I fell very asleep after that episode. So, uh, it'll be fun to revisit it uh, right. with, with all of you as well. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we'll, uh, we'll see you then. Mm-hmm.